Um, my aim this morning is to um, preach through all 42 chapters of the Old Testament book of Job under the title, Submitting to God. Um, that means a number of things. One, we're not going to read Job chapter 42 at the moment, as is on the uh, a term card. It also means that I have no PowerPoint for you on the screen, as I'll be uh, adopting a slightly different structure and style to what I normally do. What I would like to do by way of setting the context is to read some sections of Job chapters 1 and 2. That can be found on page 509 in the uh, Pew Bibles, which you ought to be able to find in front of you, and we'll read first of all a few verses from Job chapter 1. It's worth uh, making a few more comments about the uh, scene of Job, so, so far as we can tell from the uh, book of Job itself. Um, Job probably lived around about the same time as Abraham, and the scriptures are fairly clear that he was a real historical character who really prayed and who really suffered. So far as we know as well, the book which bears Job's name was probably written down sometime later, the uh, most conservative estimates are around about the time of Moses. Most of the estimates are much later than that. So then we'll read from uh, Job uh, chapter 1 and um, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. Then uh, a bit further down at verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And that happens a number of times and then we read over the page in verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. 
And then across the page, chapter 2 and verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. As is always the case when we're looking at God's word, we need God's help. So let's pray together. Lord, especially as we come this morning to consider this probably most difficult of topics, that of suffering, and particularly, Father, our attitude to it and whether or not we will submit to you, we ask for your help. We ask for your help to understand what you have to say and we ask for your help to obey it, to receive it graciously and put it into practice. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. At the time, it was billed as one of the most powerful diatribes against God ever seen on television. The show was The West Wing, a drama about the President of the United States. And the particular episode was the aftermath of a funeral in a cathedral in Washington, D.C., in America. What had happened was the secretary and long-standing friend of President Bartlett, Mrs. Landingham, had been hit and killed by a drunk driver just after buying her first new car. After the funeral, the president stands alone in the cathedral and vents his anger against God. She bought her first new car and you hit her with a drunk driver. Is that supposed to be funny? What have I ever done but worship your son and give praise and glory to his name? There's a tropical storm out there that's gaining speed and power. They say we haven't had a storm this bad since you took out that attendership of mine in the North Atlantic last year. 68 crew. You know what a attendership does? Fixes other ships. Doesn't even carry guns. Just goes around fixing other ships and delivering mail. That's all it can do. Gracias to Diego Domini. Yes, I lied. It was a sin. I've committed many sins. Have I displeased you? 3.8 million jobs. That wasn't good. Bailed out Mexico. Increased foreign trade. 3 million new acres of land for conservation. We're not fighting a war. I've raised three children. That's not enough to get me out of the doghouse? Am I really to believe that these are the acts of a loving God? A just God? A wise God? And so he goes on and on. After he's finished, he uh, stubs out his cigarette on the cathedral floor and then leaves. See, one of the most difficult questions 
that we face as Christians is how to respond to the problem of innocent suffering. That is, suffering that seems to be uh, unjust and unfair and out of all proportion to the individual concerned. We, we say it often, don't we? Or at least hear about it on the news. The young person dying of cancer. The Iraqi child with his limbs blown off through no fault of his own. A loved one killed in a car crash. And we wonder how these terrible instances of suffering are allowed in God's world. And this kind of suffering takes on a whole different perspective for us when it becomes personal and affects us or someone in our family circle. Our child, our friend, and so on. And at times like that, we might be tempted to cry out to God, just like President Bartlett did, wondering, where is God? Why does suffering seem to be so meaningless? How does it fit in with a God who is loving and just? I guess one reaction would be to get angry with God. And we've already seen from our series in in the prayers of the Old Testament that we can be honest with God and we can tell him exactly how we feel. However, this morning we come to the other side of the coin. And what we will learn from the book of Job is that there is also a time to submit to God and accept his will for our lives, especially in this most difficult of areas, that of innocent suffering. I'm not saying that this will be easy, or that it will not be painful along the way. But I think the message of Job for us is that if we persevere in the face of suffering, then God will give us the grace to submit to him. If we persevere in the face of suffering, then God will give us the grace to submit to him. We need to do some groundwork on this word submission as well, don't we? When we think of submission, we often think of a wrestler who has pinned someone else down on the, on the mat and forcing them to submit. However, that's not what it means to submit to God. Instead, what it means to submit to God is to humbly bow your head in God's presence, acknowledging who he is and our rightful place in his universe. Submitting to God isn't being forced into it against your will. Instead, it's to willingly recognise who God is and respond to him appropriately as one of his creatures. Like uh, President Bartlett and many of us, Job was someone who knew all about innocent suffering. We uh, read some of the extracts there. One day he was in, in the fields when someone brought him word that raiders had taken his flocks and killed his servants. Before long, another servant brought him word to say that all his sheep and all his camels had been carried off. And then while he was still speaking, another arrived to say that his sons and daughters had been killed by a freak wind that had blown in from the desert and destroyed the house in which they were feasting. Within a moment, Job's world had fallen down round about him and the rest of the book is all about how he learns to submit to God, the advice his friends gave him, the complaints he made, and finally what God said and how Job responded to it. And that'll be a very vague, rough outline of where we're going this morning. 
However, just before we get into any of that, we need to notice that we as the readers know an awful lot more about Job's predicament than he did. Job was obviously only able to view things from a kind of earthly, human perspective and therefore couldn't comprehend what was going on. However, in the um, passage that we read together in Job uh, chapter 1, we are shown what is happening behind the scenes in heaven. And what we see is that Satan comes to God and challenges him about his honour. He says that the only reason that this guy Job worships God is because he has blessed him. If God were to remove all the blessings, then Job would surely turn away from him and wouldn't serve him anymore. However, God says, Satan, that's just not true. Job is one of my faithful servants. And as a result, God permits Satan to bring suffering to Job as long as he spares his life. And so the whole book really hinges around this great cosmic clash, this wager between God and Satan. Will Job prove faithful to God in spite of his circumstances? Will he still love and honour God when he suffers? Or will he just give up and go home? Will he still submit to God even when things start to go wrong for him? Will God's honour be maintained and preserved through the perseverance of his servant? So with some of these questions in mind then, let's move on and look at the story of Job. And the first thing that we come to is the advice of his friends, or how not to handle suffering. In all truth, Job was probably fairly glad to see his friends arrive on the scene. There he was, suffering in silence, and they came to sit with him and commiserate with him and sympathise with him. Indeed, um, this is probably the wisest thing that they actually do in 38 chapters. After seven days, though, they opened their mouths and they start offering him advice about his predicament. And what they have to offer is a very simple and mechanical view of suffering. They start with the correct proposition that sin causes suffering. However, what they do is they turn it on its head and deduce from that that suffering must therefore be caused by sin. Job suffers, they say, therefore he has obviously sinned somewhere along the line and if he will only repent and put things right, then God will restore him to his former state. Each of the friends comes at this from a slightly different angle, but they are all essentially harping on the same theme. Suffering is caused by sin and if Job would repent, then he would once again enjoy God's favour on his life. One of them, Eliphaz claims a supernatural experience to back it up. He says that a ghost told him about it in the middle of the night. That's in chapter 4, verse 15. Bildad is a real tradition man. This is what the fathers have taught and therefore it must be true and evermore shall be so. So far, is into his theology and his philosophy and he has deduced logically that Job's suffering must be the result of his sin. And similar ideas to all of these are still in currency today. One response that you often hear to the problem of of suffering is the very simplistic solution that if you are suffering then you must be experiencing payback 
for something that you have done wrong in the past. This is certainly true for some of the Eastern religions, where a physical handicap, for instance, is seen as a punishment for sins that have been committed in a previous life. You can even find more refined versions of this same idea closer to home. I once met a student who was having a hard time making friends at university and she thought that she was being, being punished for not having her quiet times over the holidays. Even more of us subscribe to the flip side of this view, which is to assume that God owes us one because we've lived good lives or we've always gone to church. For instance, President Bartlett thought that he ought to be immune from suffering because he had created jobs and had bailed Mexico out of debt. However, the message here of Job is that the innocent do suffer and that there are no straightforward or mechanical uh, explanations or answers or one-to-one correlations between someone who kind of suffers and certain sins that they have committed. I think there's also something very important here among Job's friends for any of us who are ever in the position of offering sympathy to other people. You see, sometimes the best thing to do is just to sit silently with those suffering and not to say anything at all. We must be especially wary, perhaps, of offering trite answers or patronising Christian clichés where there are no loose edges and everything fits into a nice, neat system. Job tells us there is such a thing as innocent suffering. So then let's uh, move on and let's look at the complaints that Job made to God or the struggles of a genuine believer. It's very important to realise that Job's troubles are the struggles of someone who believes in God. Job is not an atheist who doesn't believe in God because of all the suffering in the world. Instead, the reason he struggles as he does is precisely because he believes in God but yet feels him to be distant or silent. He knows that God is there but he just can't reconcile that with what is going on in his life right now. Why is this happening to me? Why am I an innocent sufferer? What purpose is there to my suffering? How can God be good and allow these things to happen to me as one of his people? See, Job is looking for answers. And so it's not surprising that throughout the course of the book, we we find him crying out to God, pouring out his heart and complaining to him. If you want to turn forward a few chapters to Job chapter 10 and verses 1 to 3. There he uh, says, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? You can almost hear it, can't you? You see, Job is certain of his own innocence. Nowhere does he claim to be, to be sinless but he knows that he's innocent of any vast sin that warrants the extent of the suffering that he's now going through. And so the only possibility that he's left with is that God is being unjust. And that for him is unthinkable, and yet some of his complaints come dangerously close to saying that. 
we will see later on what God has to say about it. But for now, all we need to note is that for Job, in his quest for answers, there are really only two possibilities. Either he is at fault, or God is. And because he knows that he is innocent, he comes dangerously close to questioning the integrity of God in his complaints. He actually sets up his speeches like a kind of law court, where he is the defendant and God is the judge. Either he's looking for a specific set of charges which he can answer and thereby prove his innocence, or he's looking for a not guilty verdict and an end to his distress. Either way, he's looking for vindication and demands an audience with God to make his case. It's worth us reflecting for a moment on a few of these things. One of the things that I think we as human beings most want to know in our suffering is that it is not meaningless. Like Job, we want some reasons for what we are going through. And so we repeatedly try to call God to account to try try to get some reasons out of him. If we were atheists, then suffering presents no problem for us. It's just one of those random things that happen in a random world spinning out of control. But for the genuine believer in God, it's a different matter. It's a thing of struggle. We believe that God is there, but we can't understand what he's doing, and so we cry out to him, pleading for some answers. If our suffering is not our fault, as we believe, then there's no other option. God is to blame, and so we complain against him and demand an audience. In our pain, some of us even begin to start accusing God. All we really want is some reassurance from him that he's not deaf or dumb or blind to our circumstances. So then thirdly, this brings us to God's answer. In chapter 38, God finally breaks his silence and speaks to Job out of the storm. So let's uh, move forward to Job chapter 38. And there in verses 2 and 3, God finally responds to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now, this wasn't exactly what Job was expecting. He was expecting some answers from God, not vice versa. But here, it is God who is clearly expecting some answers from Job. And what follows are the most incredible three entire chapters of questions. Some of the most beautiful nature of poetry ever written, as God takes Job on a kind of grand safari, on a guided tour round his creation, and questions him about it time and time again. You can see some of it there. Where were you when I laid the world's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its moorings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place? Have you, Job? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up and establish God's dominions over all the earth? Can you, Job? Can you do this? 
Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides the food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Who does that, Job? Who does that? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you, Job? Do you count the months until they bear? Do you know the time at which they give birth? Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? Who did, Job? Who did? And so on, and so on, and so on, for three whole chapters. Job, do you know anything at all about my power and my creation? Do you realize that I am in absolute control? Has it ever dawned on you that I see absolutely everything there is and know what is happening in every inch of my world at any given moment? Have you realized that, Job? And yet you, Job, ask me for answers. You demand explanations. You accuse me of being unjust. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? That's chapter 40. You see, it's not hard to see what God's driving at, is it? He is God. He is in control of everything. There's not a snowflake that falls. There's not a mountain goat that gives birth without him knowing. Therefore, wherever did Job get this idea that suffering is meaningless and outside of God's control and his sphere of sovereignty? Job is on earth. He doesn't even know most of the time what's happening in creation. So how can he understand God's ways when it comes to something as complex as suffering? If God lets him know what's going on, that's all well and good, but Job has no right to it, and God reminds him of that. It's interesting that nowhere does God downplay the gravity of Job's suffering or say that it was caused by his sins. But on the other hand, nor does he give Job the specific answers he was looking for. For instance, he never even tells him about the wager in heaven. Instead, he just tells Job that he is sovereign, that he is in control, and that he can be trusted on the basis of that. Now, I'm not sure what you make of God's response, whether you find that helpful or not. Really, what God, what God is saying is that he is in control. We don't have the full picture. He does. And therefore, there are going to be times in life when our suffering is going to seem mysterious and difficult to handle. But we have to trust that he knows what he's doing nonetheless because he is in charge. Now, is this a cop vote on God's part? Now, a sceptic is going to say yes to that, and indeed many have. They say it's just an inadequate response, it's an inadequate answer to the problem of innocent suffering, just to put it in a huge box labelled mystery on the side. However, as a Christian and a believer, I'm going to say, no, it is not a cop-out. At the end of the day, one of the things that I believe about God is that he is cleverer than me. And if that means that there are going to be some things that, that I don't understand, some of his ways that I can't comprehend, or even some things that are mysterious, that he for his own reasons chooses not to reveal to me, then so be it. That is up to him, and I need to trust him with that. 
Furthermore, what are the alternatives? That everything is random and meaningless and our suffering is purely by chance? Or that it has a loving hand in it somewhere, even if we can't always discern that. And besides, my faith in God doesn't actually ultimately depend on a watertight answer to the problem of suffering. It depends on something far, far more reliable to that that we will come to later on. However, regardless of what we think, God's answer was good enough for Job. And after three entire chapters of being questioned by God, he responds with submission. And this is what he says in Job chapter 42 and verses 1 to 6. We can almost hear him whispering these words half through joy and confidence in God and half through his tears. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but no, my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job acknowledges that God is greater than he had ever thought or realized or even conceived of. He doesn't have any answers to his suffering, but he knows that God is in control and that is enough. And so he shows us what it means to submit to God in a very practical way. First of all, it means repentance. As soon as Job realises his rightful place in the universe, who God is, all he can do is say sorry and apologise to God for some of his attitudes. He repents, for instance, for his arrogance in demanding answers from God for questioning God's wisdom and love and doubting his power, for being impatient with God and not trusting that God knew what he was doing. He says sorry simply for not knowing God as well as he ought to have done. And that's something that I think is tremendously challenging for us, isn't it? It's interesting that even although Job did so much right, when he realised the heights of God's power and greatness, he showered himself with dust and ashes and repented. The only appropriate response to God from us is one of confession and contrition. And then secondly, submitting to God means faith. Job passed the test. He proved Satan wrong. Satan had said that the only reason that Job worshipped God was because he was blessed. However, even when all God's blessings were taken away, Job still loved God and remained faithful to him. Admittedly, it had been a rocky ride. But through it all, Job had flatly refused to curse God and die. He had been angry at God. He had even said a, a, a few things that were close to the line that he later repented for. But he had come through. He had not given in to the wrong theology of his friends, but he had faithfully defended the truth.
Job never gave up. Even in the darkest times, we don't find him throwing in the towel and walking away. We find him talking to God and telling him how he feels and petitioning him for his help. And in fact, one of the most striking things I think that I find about the whole book of Job is just how much Job actually really does know about God. So for instance, as you just read, read through it, we find Job acknowledging God as creator and a designer. We find him asking in prayer for a, a judge and a restorer. We find him looking for a mediator and a comforter and an intercessor and a go-between between him and God. And in one of the best-known passages in the whole book, famously set to music by Handel, he expresses his confidence in God as his Redeemer and his Saviour. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not any other. How my heart yearns within me. That's Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. You see, the thing about Job is that in spite of all the mystery and the innocent suffering that he couldn't understand, he kept the faith and kept going with God. No matter how silent heaven seemed and how bad the suffering got and how much advice he received, Job remained faithful to God in prayer and continued to trust in him. And the thing is that we actually have a lot more evidence than Job did in this respect. He had crocodiles. We have the cross. We know that our Redeemer lives because he has come to earth, the only truly innocent sufferer that there has ever been, who died for us, who underwent silence and abandonment by God without complaint who submitted completely to the will of the Father, who trusted in him, and yet whose suffering achieved a higher purpose, the redemption and forgiveness of you and me. It's no coincidence, really, that we're studying Job this particular Sunday. It's no coincidence either that in the early church that the book of Job for the first few centuries was always read in the week before Easter because it talks about an innocent sufferer submitting himself to God and rising at the end to become more blessed than he had been before. And therefore, in our own suffering, when our loved ones die, and when our prayers aren't answered, and our blessings seem to be taken away, we can continue to trust, because we can look at Jesus and know for sure that our Redeemer lives We can know for sure that God loves us, that he suffers with us, and that in God's plan, even innocent suffering always has a higher purpose, even if we don't understand it now. When we suffer, there will always be mystery. Like Job, we may never fully understand, but there will always be something for us to hold on to as well, because God has revealed himself in his Son on the cross enough for us to put our faith in him. So when we suffer, how will we respond? Will we accuse God? 
Will we use our suffering as an excuse to get angry with God and turn away from him? Or will we submit to him? Will we trust him? Will we accept that we are not always going to have all the answers to all our questions in the ways that we would like? Will there be faith as well as mystery? I um, enjoy going hill walking from time to time. And one of the most moving articles that I've ever read on suffering came from reading a hiking magazine last year. It was about a Presbyterian pastor who went hiking by himself in one of the many vast wilderness areas of Wyoming in the United States. On the fourth day of his uh, expedition, uh, he was on his own, he uh, slipped and got his legs trapped by a large boulder that he couldn't move. He was um, about 40 yards from a lake shore and he had his rucksack and his New Testament and a pen with him. And so he began a journal of his thoughts in the margin of his New Testament. There was no chance of him being found and he knew that and that there was no way that he could move and so he began to reflect on his suffering. Not unsurprisingly, his writings are filled with references to the book of Job as he poured out his heart to God. God is with me, but I am angry with him. Why this terrible injustice, or is it the product of pride? This sense of wrestling against God, or the angel of God, is distressing. What can I do against God? I don't want to be fighting against God's will. How am I failing him, or what does he need to teach me through this? What is the purpose of this ordeal? Will I ever know, or continue to be puzzled, angered, and feel quite abandoned by the one whom I serve? The article goes on, to a man who had spent most of his adult life teaching others the joys of God's eternal presence in their lives, the sense of abandonment must have been gut-wrenching. Steeped in biblical teachings, he could not help but recognize the parallels between his entrapment and the Old Testament sufferings of Job. He understood that even a lifetime of faith and obedience did not keep a person from pain and suffering, but this was more than he could have imagined. As a pastor, Mike Turner had been called upon hundreds of times to comfort others in the face of death. At funerals and in the hushed living rooms of mourning families, he had overseen the passing of others. Now alone in one of the wildest places on earth, he was in effect overseeing his own. He died 11 days after he was first trapped. And his final words are a moving testimony to his submission to God. Fill me with peace, Lord. May the conditions that I am in not deny my love for you. I am ready to die, though missing my family. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Then a quotation from the book of Job. I will trust in God, though he will slay me, yet will I trust in him. He is the way, the truth, the light. As his final hours approached, his body was shutting down, but it was as though his spirit was opening up. All the questions, all the doubts, and all the anger seemed to a dissolve like the morning mist on the lake. What remained was the unbreakable bedrock of belief. A boulder could crush his legs. It could not crush his faith in God. His suffering was innocent. 
He knew it wasn't the result of some sin that he had committed. Like Job, he complained to God. On earth, down here, he never knew why he suffered. It is mysterious. But yet, he had faith. He committed his cause to God. He didn't reject God, but in the final analysis, submitted to him and humbly bowed his head. When we suffer, there will always be mystery. Will there also be faith? When we suffer, there will often be mystery. Will it be accompanied in your life and in mine by faith? Let's pray together. Maybe just a few moments quiet for you to respond.